It's time for the RGGEDU podcast, where we talk a little photography and drink a lot of whiskey. Welcome to the RGGEDU podcast, where Rob and Gary talk and bark with your favorite photographer. This podcast is brought to you by Sekonic, makers of a complete range of photo and cine light meters for professionals and passionate amateurs who care about the craft of photography. Sekonic meters help you get it right in camera, so you can save time in post-production, which will let you focus on improving and being more creative. Head over to Sekonic.com for more information about how their products can help you be a better photographer every day. In this episode, we are joined with Nina Leitner. Alongside Rob Graham, I'm Gary Martin. We're going to talk a little bit about your work as a director of photography. You do stuff with Cinema5D.com. Nino, can you give our audience who does not know you a, a rundown of who you are and what you do? Sure. I'm a director of photography. I'm uh, based in Vienna in Austria, but I really work very internationally. I do a lot of documentary work, um, a lot of commercials and corporate stuff. But uh, the work that I do is tends to look like documentary very often, even if I'm you know often hired for commercials mm-hmm. and stuff. That's what I'm specialized in. Cool. How did you get into the business? Um... Well, I guess I grew up in a creative family. My parents had a graphic design agency. Uh, that's how I started. But then, you know, like was always more interested in the moving image. And then um, I actually went to a film, like a media school specialized in filmmaking. Uh, discovered my love for documentaries in university and then uh, made a long documentary about, you know, a video surveillance in the United Kingdom, which is very common there um and just being curious about it why it's so prevalent in a democratic country and um yeah i did a one-hour documentary about that started going to film festivals with it for a year after university it did quite well won a few prizes and that really you know that's when i discovered that that's what i want to do but i was always a very visual person so it was clear to me that i want to be um director of photography really and um I am I I am directing documentaries sometimes, but you know, like ninety percent of my work is being director of photography on all kinds of shoots. Did you have some people following you when you were doing that documentary on surveillance in the UK? Do you think you were being surveilled? <laughs> oh, definitely. I mean, so this is a big subject, but I mean, this was a while ago. So this was like in two thousand. We started shooting it really in two thousand four. And we finished the film in 2006, so it's, you know, like 11 years ago. The way the cameras worked back then was mostly tape-based still, so they didn't have all the intelligence behind it yet. That was just around the corner. Yeah, uh, It's a, a lot more scary now with, you know, facial recognition and all that kind of things. Sure. And you wouldn't believe how many of these people who sit behind these screens are actually prying on you all the time because they just can, and nobody can prevent them from doing that. Seriously. So, so what's, what's the conclusion? Why why were so many people under surveillance in, in England? Uh, it's, a, it's a long explanation. I also wrote my master's thesis, thesis about it, which was kind of the side, pro, you know, side product yeah. of the actual film. Um, and, uh, well, it's basically... Uh, you know, like the tabloid media, like the yellow press in the UK, they just thrive on having, you know, still images of, of, of surveillance cameras on the cover. And, and we were always surprised why the British people hate, you know, they really hate being, um, identity cards. You know, you guys don't have that as well. I mean, you don't have to have them. I mean, it's something that is, uh, 
uh, or for example, like a registry where everybody lives, which is like standard in many countries around the world, in Europe as well, not in the UK. They hate even talking about that. Um, but for some reason, they never minded being filmed by, you know, millions of cameras in London alone. Mm. Uh, and I think that's why, because they saw these images uh, taken from cameras in newspapers, you know, like, you know, like something happened, bank robbery, they put an image out and they, do you know this Catch person? The, the oh. problem is you never recognized anybody on the image. It was fuzzy. It was like at a high angle. So like in 99.9% .9 of the cases, they can actually find anybody. It's only in very high profile cases like terrorism attempts or terrorism attacks where they actually manage to, you know, maybe have like, useful information through that in 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 99 of all cases they if they found the person they didn't find it because of the image but the image implied that it's useful because it's been all over the newspapers mm -hmm. so you know they they they've gotten a lot more reasonable now uh with you know like street lighting stuff like that like everyday crime like you know rapes in in parks and 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 you know like car damage and stuff like that um that is stuff that you would think they would use the surveillance for and be able to identify the people but in reality uh it's street lighting that makes a lot a much bigger difference so like hmm. just because you know like criminals don't like to be seen so no they they hide from the light yeah so the weird thing is they had like night vision cameras in super dark parks instead of just putting some lights there <laughs> so your early projects your early documentaries how were you funding those well this project for example this was just purely funded by me you know like my own pocket which is why it's mostly a talking heads documentary but you know like i was really interested in the investigative uh aspect of it it's just being able to get a lot of different opinions and um, people in front of the camera up to you know like the deputy chief police uh guy of london and stuff like that right after their terrorist attacks happened in 2005 um and uh on the undergrounds uh on their subway but uh yeah so that was completely self-funded in a way um but uh, you know over time i mean with that film and with some other projects that i did after that i managed to get to know a lot of people who work in the documentary industry and they saw you know what i could do and i was uh, what my strengths are i guess and then i got hired to do a lot you know do a lot of shooting for documentaries for all kinds of channels and and and, and production companies for example i did a lot of work for uh, Red Bull owned TV channels, but if, you know, Red Bull is an Austrian company yeah, yeah. Yeah. and they do have a, something that is not very known outside of Germany and Austria. They have a TV channel, which is completely unrelated to Red Bull. It's, it's called Servus TV. It's, it's, it's really a more it's a very traditional channel in a way. And they do a lot of documentaries on all kinds of subjects. And I worked for them for several years on, on the science TV program, which, you know, brought me around the world. And a couple of other projects and, you know, other TV channels, also uh, American ones and stuff like that. So when did you decide to go out um, on your own and become a full-time freelancer? Well, honestly, I was never scared of being a freelancer because I knew what it was like because I, I grew up in a family, you know, like my parents had a small company with like three employees and I knew the struggle. I knew mm -hmm. what it was like. I never, you know, I never had anybody to like look up to who would you know, just be able to take a day off and still get paid or, not, you know, like take a paid vacation with, you know, that concept was foreign to me anyway. You know, it's something that is not as common here in the U.S. because you guys don't get as many 
days off, like if you are in an employed job, but like in Austria or Germany, you you would get like four to five paid weeks of vacation a year if you're employed somewhere. Four to five. That's right off the bat, pretty standard yep, for everyone. That is compulsory. Four four weeks is the minimum. Plus I the think. law. If you have a full employment, like full time employment, so a full month off. Do you usually? Do you guys usually take that whole month at a time? No, I mean you don't have to. You know, like if you are in a. Uh, I know a lot of people who are employed and they don't take all of that time. They, you know, the company can force you to take it if they, uh, if for some reason, but uh, you can also kind of like save it up and then just all use it all at once or actually get paid for that. You know, they pay you out kind of. But that's I, that's, that's a, a weird concept of forced vacation. Oh, that's great. You you know, have people, to take, yeah. A lot of people in Europe are just. August, everybody's gone. They're on yeah, exactly. I, August is in many countries. Like, if you go to Italy, it's shut down. Yeah. I mean, it's like August, you know, like on August 15th, it's like one of their biggest public bank holidays. It's like nobody works. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's good and bad, right? right. So, uh, I mean, just running a business in Europe, I think, is a lot harder because if you have employees, it's just so expensive. And yeah. it's it's just really, even if you make a decent income it's just much harder to grow as a company that's one of the things that you know we're struggling with you that's why in our industry you work with a lot of other freelancers because you just can't afford to have a regular staff you know how it is a project business it's like volatile mm, yep. and that's how we work but yeah so but that's going back to your question so basically i i wasn't scared of that so i went freelance right away and i did work for a couple of production companies as a pa in the beginning just to get to know you know, the industry when I was finished, just to to learn how, you know, bigger productions are organized and, you know, like big commercial sets and stuff like that. Uh, because that's where I came from, the advertising side, kind of. Um, but then, yeah, I, I pretty much went freelance right away when I realized if I want to be, if you want to be a creative in our industry, you need to be freelance because otherwise, you know, at best you could be probably uh, an editor or something. Yeah. How how often are you working on German documentaries versus English? I mean, you're obviously, I'm sure you're bouncing back and forth between the two. Well, it's hard to say. Um, obviously, all the stuff that's produced for Austrian or German TV will be in German. But um, I would say about, I, if I just look at, you know, where the money comes from, I, w I would say around 50% of my work comes from outside of Austria or more even. Um so, which is good. So, mm -hmm. I'm not very dependent on the local economy in a way. Right. But, I mean, of course, everybody is. But, you know, uh, that's the the bread and butter, basically. So, the, the regular stuff. But uh, the lot of the bigger projects that I do are usually out of the country. So, yeah. So, compare and contrast working for American clients versus European clients. What's the difference? Is there any? Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, good question. Right. Not always. But, uh, I mean, the I find American productions... Um, well, I can just speak for the ones that I worked for. And I think there's a tendency for those that I get booked for. Uh, you know, people always appreciate you more if you're not from somewhere. You know, if I was living here, I wouldn't get, you know, like I wouldn't be the guy from Europe. I would right. be the guy who lives in Vegas or yeah. something. Right. Uh, and you don't want to be the guy that lives in Vegas. Yeah. Nobody <laughs> wants to be the guy that lives in Vegas. <laughs> no, but uh, I mean, it's. I think I just get booked for bigger productions with better budgets uh, from the US, right? But I know that the small productions exist here as well. So in my experience, obviously the productions that I work for in the US are usually better organized and they're bigger. Uh, but that's just my perspective and I know that small productions are there as well. But I know just in general the whole industry and in terms of um, 
also depends on the field. Are we talking about, you know, documentary or narrative work? So, but I, I find, well, there's a lot more tendency, definitely, if you deal with companies in the US to have contracts and that type of stuff, which I appreciate. So you kind of know what you're dealing with, you know. I find a lot of people, sometimes in Europe, it's more like, you know, can we do it this day? And then they just postpone it and it's a bit more flaky sometimes. That's, that's you know, my subjective. <laughs> that actually surprises me because I think Europeans in many ways are very buttoned up. Um, particularly some of the... Of Not the in the Germ artistic in field, In the Germanic countries, you think of them being very... Yeah. No, actually, up. my my girlfriend is American and she's an opera singer. And she just... Oh, wow. She's just in the process of moving to Europe because there's a lot more work for her. Oh, yeah. Vienna's, Vienna's like the capital. Exactly. Yeah. That's uh, why. <laughs> I was I was in Vienna for uh, New Year's. Yeah. That was my first time going. Oh, my Lord. Is that city beautiful? Oh, it's it one is, of the yeah. most gorgeous cities ever. I love it. Uh, everything is... I've been there many times. Yeah, cool. Yeah. I used to... It, back in the uh, 90s, I used to go to Europe every winter and photograph figure skating events throughout Germany and Austria. And so I was so actually a professional figure skater. <laughs> I wish I was. I, I spent a lot of time at like Garmischbahn kicking and oh, cool, and uh, and a lot of time in Vienna. I love That's Vienna. Where I mean, I'm from Innsbruck, you know, the western, yeah, absolutely, the, absolutely, the capital of the Alps, as they call it. I've had several holidays in in Innsbruck awesome. because yeah. of the Stressler family, who I would always hang out with, that would yeah. go there and and that man. What a beautiful place yeah, to, it's very to spend beautiful. Christmas. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, well, yeah, one of the top cities I've ever been to. Absolutely. Gotta. So you're also involved with quite a bit of uh, uh, well, cinema5d.com. Yeah. Quite a bit of like reviews and collaborating with companies. Yeah. How did that all start and, and why, why, why do it? So how did it start? Well, reality is I have always, you know, like I started really networking a lot with Twitter and probably around the time the 5D Mark II came out, I really also, you know, when I went freelance a few years after that, I was shooting with cameras like, you know, first DVX 100, still mini DV, then moving up to an EX3, really just, you know, really the indie shooter with their own kit. And then um, when the DSLRs came out, I really started more with a T2i, you know, the small cheap one, because yeah. I, I bought it just as an extra camera. I didn't really take it seriously. But then I realized, what a potential it had. And then I started I personally on my own blog, started blogging about it um, and did that for a couple of years. And it went quite well. Um, did a lot of accessory stuff. I mean, if I look back at those um, posts now, it's crazy. You'd have hundreds of comments on that because nobody blogged about it. You know, there was only a handful of people. My dear friend, Philip Bloom did it. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's really become a friend over the years and we do a lot of workshops together. But that's how I met him also with Twitter before we started working together on things. And then, uh, yeah, a couple of other sites, but there weren't many, and mine was one of them. And another one was Cinema 5D. And at the time, I didn't even know Sebastian Weber, who founded the site, despite the fact uh, he was also in Vienna. You know, I, I, you guys I, were neighbors and didn't know it. I literally met him once. He went to the premiere of that documentary I was talking about with another friend, you know, like years before. And I knew that he ran the site, but I didn't really know him. So one day in Vegas, actually, at NAB was probably 2011 or something or 2012, 2011. Uh, I walked up to him because I knew he was shooting videos here and I was doing talks for some company or, you know, um, all, all kinds of things. And uh, I was like, well, we should do something together. We we are in the same city. We are both kind of struggling, you know, keeping our sites going because we are getting busier and busier yep. as shooters, which is good, mm -hmm. but also just harder to just keep blogging. And we should, you know, look at this maybe more professionally. 
And then he, uh, at the same time, also we he started working with uh, Johnny Behiri, who's our third partner. And so we basically became partners and relaunched the site within one year. Uh, it was more like, you know, his when he started, it was a forum site with a little bit of news. That's it. No, not many reviews. And then we relaunched it together, the three of us, and made it into a proper company and took it more seriously and made it really into a re- – we kind of ditched the whole forum because it's just a lot of hate. And, yeah, I mean, forums are really dying out. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of forums, and I've never been a forum person. Neither have uh, my partners been. So we were you – know, Is we knew Reddit it, just one big forum? You Redditor? Reddit is one big Reddit. forum. Yeah, it is yeah. basically. But I, can't I, mean, get into, I can't get into Reddit because it's one big forum. Yeah, so, like, yeah, me, me neither. Yeah. But there's a lot of people who are still on that. But we weren't, and we knew that we would give up a lot of traffic because, you know, forum sites just get a lot of traffic organically because they have so much content that kind of generates itself. Yeah. Um, if they're successful, which is fine, and it's great to find answers to your questions, uh, we just aren't these people. And so we relaunched the website and did a news and and really focused on 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 camera reviews and news. And, and, and ever since then, that was around, yeah, 2000, when was the relaunch? Like five years ago. And then we, we just took it step by step and made it bigger and bigger. Now it's one of the biggest sites in, in our industry, which is, you know, the video camera reviews and the name still bears, you know, like cinema 5d, he called it, Sebastian called it this, um, name because of obviously the 5d mark yeah. two uh we've come a long way since then but it's still uh you know it's is he <laughs> kicking himself now and be like damn why do you yeah obviously 5D? everybody is you know yeah. there's other sites that are called you know like eu's hd and yeah, stuff yeah. like that and he, like he, slr lounge like we're getting away from like slrs at one point that's not even gonna yeah. exist and it's like oh crap there'll yeah, be mirrorless lounge yeah <laughs> but it's very hard you can't really change the name right it's yeah it's very I mean, rebranding is hard it's very hard and yeah. it could be called cinema d or something <laughs> but, right. yeah. digital yeah. i think one of the other things that that uh, people think is hard is uh, finding work as a um, documentarian that is yeah. not the, the easiest of genres in the world of cinematography so how how did you go about establishing yourself in that in that market yeah i mean it is hard and it, i think it's a process it's not even like now I'm established. It's more like it's always about personal relationships with directors, really, mm-hmm. uh, because they need to be comfortable shooting with you. So you need to get a chance to actually shoot with them one time, and then they will come back to you if you did a great job. Right. I mean, I think our whole whole industry is so much based on reputation and uh, a recommendation, actually. Yeah. Um, that you know, it's it's a very very small industry, even on the international scale. Um, you know each other. I mean, you know a lot of people in a very short amount of time because there aren't that many. I mean, I, I'm I'm sure in the photography world it's it's probably ten or twenty times as big, but in in the filmmaking world, the people who really take this seriously in different fields, uh, you kind of get to know them um, relatively fast. And uh, yeah, I mean, how do you establish yourself? Is a good question. I mean, it's just basically just work your ass off and just really do a lot of projects also for free. So what I did is one of the good things about blogging, um, you know, you have a chance to actually do in your kind of spare time, do um, free projects kind of, you know, about whatever you want, like be it music videos or mini documentaries. And um, it's always going to be, oh, I'm testing this piece of gear or this camera where I honestly 
you know, sometimes I'm not interested in the camera, but I'm, you know, I kind of have to be because it's a side. I mean, I, I love gear. Yeah. Don't get me wrong, but you know, I love the content more. I love yeah. the, um, and, and it, it just gives you an excuse to, to do something with it. And, and if, you know, sometimes you have enough time to dedicate to something, you can do like a cool music video with a new camera. And a lot of people will watch it because it's that new camera, but they also end up watching your work. And, and very often I've gotten work from, from that as well. And not just that. And also I give a lot of workshops. I mean, wouldn't say a lot, but maybe like five, six times a year, mm. either smaller or, you know, one, two, three day workshops. And I really, you know, you don't do that kind of stuff for money because there is really not much money in it. Um, even if you, you know, we try to do this on a really big, not big scale, but like, you know, with Philip Bloom together, I did the filmmaking masterclasses, like three day events. We did them all over the world. We did one in Vegas before we did one mm -hmm. uh, in Miami. Uh, we did one several times in Mallorca, uh, everywhere in, nice. in England and stuff like that. But it's a lot of work to put them together just yeah. in terms of organizing them. But the benefit of them is really the meet the people you meet, because the cool thing is it's such an intense time, these three days. And the people who take part, you just you really learn as much from them as they learn from you, uh, because those are people from different walks of life. It's very often people who did something else before and go into filmmaking. They have a lot of life experience. Some of them, some of them, of course, are very young and just starting out. But um, sometimes I even get jobs from them, right? So I just did a job with somebody who took part in the workshop that I did last year, and it was quite a big gig actually, because they knew, oh, okay, this guy knows how to shoot that kind of thing. So. Uh, and we know him now because, you know, they worked. Sure, they had that relationship. Exactly. So it's always about personal relationship. That's what I'm trying to say. So even if people are starting out and, you know, not going to film school, um, you don't have to go to film school. Absolutely not. I mean, I think 99% of the things I do every day, I did not learn in film school. But what I did learn there. But I, you learned I, it on nofilmschool.com. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 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 no, those are great colleagues. I mean, uh, I was joking today. We should uh, register the domain like a little bit of filmschool.com <laughs> and, just, <laughs> and just forward it to Cinema 5D. I yeah. like that. <laughs> yeah, That's yeah. funny. No, yeah. because, you know, a little bit of film school is right. good because you, uh, you get to know people that you work with. And some of the earliest relationships that I have with people in our industry are people that I went to school with. And I really, you know, you trust them, you know them. Uh, it's only a handful of people that I still am in touch with, but those are the ones that, you know, like I know exactly um, who they are and what they can do. And a lot of them also, you know, some of them moved to Vienna. So there's a, there's a relationship there. And that was really my starting point. Um, so you really need to get to know people in order to, to be able to get those jobs and you need to put yourself out there. And also I think one good um, idea is always for people to, they should really, sh what really helped me is just sharing your work. You know, a lot of people are kind of scared sharing their work because they think it's not good enough. Mm -hmm. There's always people who will, you know, not be where you are yet. Even if you're just starting out, you will inspire a lot of people that have never touched a camera or, are, you know, thinking about starting and, and, and you're taking the plunge and really doing it. So they will appreciate that and, and step by step and you just put out your work and, and just, you just need to really hang your ego somewhere and just leave it there because right. what's clear, people will criticize you and, you know, you will get, you know, negative oh, comments as well. Right. 
But so, in, in general, the positivity is so overwhelming that it inspires you really to to do even more work and do better work. So I really like that, and and that's also how you get noticed. You know, like if you don't talk about yourself and your work, you, you need to be as a freelancer. You need to be a self marketer. If you're an introverted person, you might have a problem. You know, that's 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 how it is. You you should probably better off as an editor. Where do you think are, is a good place for people to put out their work today? So someone who's just kind of getting into the business and wants to get some feedback and uh, wants people to start to take notice. What do you think are some of the best avenues for them yeah. to, to put their stuff out? It's gotten a, a bit it's harder. Changed. It's harder it's now. Changed. Facebook's yeah. changed. Everything's changed. That's so. very true. It's getting harder. And we notice that with – yeah, I mean here at the show, like like in terms of Cinema 5D, we produce so many videos for – we have a team of seven here uh, churning out a lot of videos and and you know like we relied on vimeo for many years yeah. on our content but also our personal content our work and stuff i still love vimeo for what it is but i think they didn't do the best job in maintaining that community of filmmakers that they you know had for a very long time um, they still have it but they haven't developed as fast as youtube has and yeah. the quality mm -hmm. in youtube has gone up significantly especially if we're talking about tutorials and all that kind of things um you know there's some really great content there um and and also work now uh freelancers so it is for me you know you have to basically put it out wherever you can but vimeo and youtube are very important for that um a few years ago i would have said you know focus on vimeo and and foster that community i think you should still do that but don't ne neglect youtube it's not as you know, it's not all cat videos anymore. It's, <laughs> it's gotten it's it's a lot of cat videos in 4K now, <laughs> but it's also it's also good content now. So it's it, it's gotten a lot better. Cat yeah. videos in 4K. All yeah. right. So the 4K, the 6K, the 8K. Yeah. What are you shooting? What, what are you shooting with? Mm. What do you what do you like doing projects on? Honestly, I mean, I shoot most a lot of stuff in 4K, but I still shoot a lot of stuff in HD if it's stuff that. I shoot a lot, you know, for example, I'm I'm DP on this um, talk, like a political talk show that we shoot on cinematic looking cameras, and it's always shot on location and cool locations around Vienna often. But also, we went to Washington for the election. We went to uh, Greece for all kinds of things. We went to Paris after the terror attacks there. Um, so, but we shoot that in HD. There's no reason to shoot that in H in in 4K because yeah. that has a turnaround of sometimes a day. Um, four cameras, multicam edit, done. You know, goes right. online, minimal grading, and looks great. Um, but for all the commercial or all the proper documentary stuff that has more work, I would shoot in 4K. Uh, but I think this hype around the resolution, yeah, I mean, it is important. It's not like it's not important, but the, the best thing is not the actual resolution itself because 99 or let's say 95% of all my clients actually want the final result in HD or even if they want the 4K they will only use the HD um, uh, but it still makes sense to shoot in 4K or more if you can uh, because of uh, the fact that you can crop it so it's right. something that photographers are used to you can crop images you just you know you just adjust your picture as much as you can uh, in post obviously also the raw thing is something that's very common in, in photography it's something that's still not the standard in, in filmmaking just because of the amount of data you're generating. But having that resolution helps you to be able to, for example, shooting an interview with one camera. Uh, 
if you shoot an interview with one camera, if you shoot in 4K, you can theoretically crop in and have that second shot. Right. It's, of course, not a real second shot. And if right. you look closely, you'll see the difference. Right. But it is a chance to, it's your get out of jail free card because, you know, sometimes the worst thing that I, you know, when I shoot interviews, um, the traditional way would be to cut to B-roll if you cut something out. But it's terrible. It's this typical TV shot of like the hands moving and stuff like that <laughs> is really bad. So if you have, if you shoot an interview with two cameras, ideally, or just one camera in 4K, you have a chance to cut to this second perspective and just cut out whole, you know, half sentences or something. You can shorten stuff up. You can make it. And, you know, the viewer would never know that you cut anything out if you cut from face to face. So actually it's become very common to shoot with two or more cameras, even a normal interview because they are so available. But even if you don't, you know, you can shoot it in 4K and you can crop in. Uh, and that's something that, you know, some sometimes makes a lot of sense. If you could go back in time and give advice to younger Nino 10 years ago, Nino, what would it be? <laughs> Jill. <laughs> Jill. Just, yeah, probably, you know, like I, I think I was, um, I don't know, I worked too much in my 20s, I guess, you know, it's like, you know. So you're working less now. Better. No, I, I, I still work a lot, but yeah. um, I think I, life work I have a better life work balance. Yeah, when I'm not working, definitely. though, like I get the itch. I'm like, shit, I should be working. Uh, God, I, I need to be working. I think that's a problem. I, yeah, well, I have that time with your wife and daughter, man. <laughs> They're cool. Yeah. At some, point, at some point, you realize, you know, like it's not really the amount of work that that defines the quality of your work. Yeah. So that's what I realized a few years ago. It's like, okay, well. I'd rather, you know, spend my energy in a concentrated way on one thing rather than, you know, sitting in front of the computer trying all kinds of things. And also what I would tell my younger self is like, you know, do only the things you really enjoy because I think I remember when I was in university and after that I was like, oh, I need to learn this and that. I need to do this and that, you know, like you and you you already realize you might not be certain about it, but you already realize what your real preference is it is and in my case it was you know being the shooter being the guy behind the camera being you know somebody who creates images lighting all that kinds of thing cinematography really um i didn't enjoy really my you know like the editing or uh i don't know too much complicated cgi stuff i, I had to learn some of that stuff as well but you can't really say no to you know the courses in school but I think I would have told myself to, you know, just concentrate on what you're good at and what you enjoy more and then just try to be better at that uh, rather than, you know, trying to make everybody happy. And, and and since I've, I mean, I'm not saying, you know, every shooter should know how to edit because you're the worst shooter if you've never edited your own stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I mean, I literally the worst stuff I've edited or, you know, my production company, I would say, uh, has received and I have handed to my editor uh, was stuff that a cameraman shot that who has never edited his own stuff. It was yeah. absolutely the worst. And I remember that one time I had this, uh, I used to shoot these press junket things in, in Vienna and, and around Europe, um, uh, around, you know, for example, Universal Pictures would launch a new movie and they do like the press tour around Europe. And usually in the German speaking region, they do like one stop and they send some of the the cast to Vienna and some of them to Berlin or all of them to Vienna, all of them to Berlin, whatever. And they would book me and my team to do the interviews with these people. And sometimes we had Tom Cruise and like really high profile 
A-list actors where everything just has to work because they literally come in, they're here for 45 minutes, and then you have each TV channel sends in a reporter and they have five minutes each. And I'm like, you know, like, but they get the footage from me. So a hand on the cart and off they go. Next one comes in. So it has, it just has to work because they just will walk away. And then you know, the whole region will have no content about that film. So big problem. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, where was I? Oh, I just lost my train of thought. I think you lost us all. You blacked out. You blacked well, out. How, what was the question again? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> you blacked out too. The, the, the question, which I think you long answered, was what would you tell your old self? Yeah. yeah. yeah ten, ten year ago, Nino. It's day two at NAB. Things are already a little foggy, you know? So we have covered that. Very where, foggy. Where Where do you want to go in the next yeah. next few years? Like what, now that you've, Kind of what's next? Yeah, kind of self-established. Where do you want to go? Um, well, two things. One, one side, I think Cinema 5D has developed very well. The three of us running it, we are very different people, and we have a, we have really managed to assemble a great team of writers for us. We are around twelve writers now around the world who all shooters, which is very important, mm -hmm. and it's developed very well. I think we'll want to take that to the next level and the goal is ultimately to become the biggest site in the field right uh which is you know not easy but uh right. we're working on that um, um personally i would like to shoot more um, longer form pieces again i find i mean those are getting harder to get or because they are less being made i think it's just more serial stuff being made so i really want to you know, have a chance to shoot my own documentary again and maybe even direct it. And also, ultimately, um, you know, there's a lot of politics always involved, but uh, really shoot a feature film as a director of photography. It's something that, you know, I haven't focused on too much with all the other things going on, but I want to focus on that more. Yeah. So and outside of one. Cinema 5D, where can people find uh, your work personally? Uh, my own work. Uh, oh, actually, my personal website is kind of a mess, but it's a work in progress. Uh, yeah, really, I didn't because there's so no one much... ever has a finished website. No, it's never perfect. No, it's not. Yeah, but it's it's yeah, it's terrible. But anyway, you can go to uh, ninofilm.net/blog. That's my personal blog, which hasn't been updated too much lately, but I'm working on that. But it has a lot of work on there. One project that I'm proud of is uh, a documentary I shot in South Africa last year. For example, which was about uh, preser the rhinos, yeah. preserving the rhino, uh, cool. was a was a nice project which we shot. Very visual projects. We we did a lot of super slow motion stuff with a cine um, with a Phantom Flex, mm -hmm. and um, uh, yeah, it is. You know, it's 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 great in many ways because um, it was paid for by two equipment manufacturers, G Technology and Zeiss. Because we, I did. A, I'm, I'm for both of them. I'm brand ambassador. And it just so happened that they both had products which perfectly fit the project. And I just suggested it to them, you know, to shoot the promo there as part of that, yeah. which would also pay for that small documentary. It's like 14 minutes long. And that worked out perfectly. Um, we used the new size CineZoom, the 21100, and the, the G Technology uh, Shuttle XL RAID, which is made for outdoor use. And you need, really need a RAID when you shoot with a... And it's the sexiest hard drive in it's the world. really cool. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. I didn't think I, I never would have said hard drives are sexy, but G drive makes them sexy ones. Yeah, it it, it is. I mean, it, we needed it really. We you know you, you generate in five seconds you generate sixty four gigabytes on a Phantom Flex. Wow. In, with a thousand frames per second in four K raw, 
So that's so much data, exactly. so fast, all the data. But it worked out well, and you know they they were very happy. Had a great promo, and I re, you know like had a cool little independent documentary which with a really sensitive subject to raise awareness about that because it's a huge problem. I mean, in mm -hmm. South Africa alone, you have a thousand rhinos killed every year, and it's just close to being extinct. Just oh, because for such a stupid reason, yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's it is ridiculous. It does not give you. It's, I don't want to get into it. Yeah. It's, it's stupid. But yeah, I mean, this, you know, I want to do more stuff like that. Ideally, you know, like we have a lot of established contacts with manufacturers and it's very hard. I don't want to be, you know, like doing just a bland commercial for them. That's not me. You know, I yeah. want to, I want to involve them in something that engages people as well, where everybody, you know, nobody can complain. Well, they gave them money, but I'm not standing there and, you know, saying this is, you know, just, just the commercial. It's really, they attach themselves to a very, important subject and uh, i'm hoping that we can do more of that well awesome i know Fantastic. we have to get back to nab for the meeting so uh thank you for carving out some time this week it was, uh, it was a pleasure meeting you and talking with you hope to run into you again in the future likewise yeah we thank enjoyed you. it thank you so much thank awesome. you so much to download this po podcast and the entire season go to rggedupodcast.com oh wasn't that fun I'd stay and chat longer, but I have to go home and feed my dogs. They are getting hungry. This podcast is brought to you by Sekonic. Light meters have helped generations of photographers and filmmakers set themselves apart from the rest of the pack by helping them produce consistent results in any lighting situation. Light meters are the common tool used by every lighting master. Head to Sekonic.com and start your journey to becoming a lighting master today.